Yeah. Thank you, Steve. I don't usually get back, uh, invited back a second time, so this is a real treat. And uh, Steve is a very dear friend. My heart goes out to you, brother, as you uh, approach the anniversary of Greg's death. Steve and I have sons that are close to the same age, had some of the same issues growing up, and we leaned on one another a lot for support. And uh, my heart goes out to him. I really trust that you as a congregation will put your loving arms around him and Becky and Nikki over this next month and show them what the love of Christ is all about. I'm especially pleased to be invited to speak on the subject of biblical and theological literacy because this has been a heartbeat of mine for many years. We started a lay Bible institute at First Free in St. Louis about 15 years ago. And we did it also in Wichita about eight years ago. Hundreds of people have taken classes on doctrine and ministry and uh, the Christian life and missions and have profited enormously from that. Uh, I'm a strong believer that lay people need to be equipped for life and ministry. But, but not only do they need that, they want it. They want to know the core foundations of their faith. They want to be able to give people a reason for the hope that is in them. Unfortunately for a lot of people, the terms doctrine or theology raise visions of dry, dusty, irrelevant arguments. It shouldn't. The theology is really just uh, the articulation of knowledge about God, his creation, his salvation, his church, the future. There was a time when theology was viewed as the queen of the sciences. No longer, unfortunately. Not even in the seminaries. In fact, more future pastors are majoring in counseling today than in theology. And more electives are taken in leadership and conflict management and worship styles than in theology. And on the secular campus, you can't even find a course in theology unless it's a liberation theology, perhaps, or a feminist theology. Uh, traditional theology is viewed in the same category as psychic phenomena or religious mythology. I'd like to share with you today why I think the queen should have her crown restored. Of course, I'm interested in a certain kind of theology and that's biblical theology. There are other kinds. There's philosophical theology, there's historical theology, there's practical theology, and they all have their place. But the lifeblood of the church is biblical theology. Why is it that biblical theology has fallen on hard times? I think it's partly because there are strong voices in the church today that call us to be more culturally accommodating, more entertaining, more tolerant of the pluralistic views of our society. And there are certainly churches that need to adjust their style and their approach. I attended a church last month that I would call a time warp church uh, down in Arkansas. Everything about this church was exactly what you would have expected to find 60 years ago. 
the, um, the straight-backed pews, the pulpit thrones, you remember where pastors used to sit up in front, uh, the hymn book, the doxology, the, the um, uh, Hammond organ, the responsive reading, the sermon were all identical to what they were a half a century ago. And the pastor wondered why attendance was down to 25. And I was the youngest person in the church other than one teenage boy. The church needs to come into the 21st century. However, in the important and necessary quest to be relevant to our generation, I think the church has tended to go too far, to become too culturally accommodating, too much appeal to postmodern ways of thinking. I'm convinced that we must anchor all that we believe and all that we do to the rock, the living and written word of God. Let's begin today with the following proposition. Every Christian is a theologian. If a theologian is someone who has a viewpoint and perspective on God, his creation, his church, his salvation, the future, then we all fall into that category. For clearly we all have a viewpoint and a perspective. We may not be very good theologians, we may not be biblical theologians, we may not be logical theologians, but we are theologians, whether we like it or not. Now there are some of us who are theologians by vocation and by training, but we are all theologians in practice. Dr. Brad Harper is a professor of theology at Multnomah and uh, was a former colleague of mine for some 13 years in St. Louis. He wrote this, to whom does theology belong? Is it solely the property of academicians and seminary professors? Maybe it makes more sense to ask this question, to whom does the knowledge of God belong? Obviously, it belongs to the entire church. Well, what makes the difference between a good theologian and a mediocre one? Is it just a question of the years one has studied or the graduate degrees that someone possesses or the number of books he's read or written or how good of a communicator he is? Not necessarily. In fact, I believe the most important factor that makes a person a good theologian is that he bases his viewpoints and his perspectives on truth. As he stood before Pontius Pilate, questioned about his identity, Jesus declared, all who are on the side of truth, listen to me. Pilate, in a haughty display of philosophical cynicism, retorted to Jesus, what is truth. Here's a man so confused by the, the pluralism of Roman and Greek society that he didn't even know if there was truth. And he followed up a statement about Jesus' innocence by turning him over to the crowds for execution, showing to me that for Pilate, truth is whatever works for him at the time. Such a self-centered and pragmatic view of truth is widely reflected in our culture today 
and sometimes even in the church. The result is that people who don't know where to find truth and aren't even sure if there is such a thing as absolute truth are inevitably confused in their world view. They are forced to build their theology on such things as culture or tradition or, or intuition or experience or even speculation. And all those sources make for an inadequate theology, even heresy. The only adequate source for the knowledge of God is God's word, the Bible. Let me give you three reasons why we must strive to be good theologians. First, that we might believe and confess what is true. No one wants to believe a lie. No one wants to build his house on a foundation of sand. But many people do, inadvertently. I submit to you that the reason that virtually every major mainline denomination is in decline today is because they have abandoned the Bible as the foundation for their theology. And in its place, they have begun to elevate other sources like reason, intuition, consensus, culture, or special interest groups. Now, if you belong to a mainline denomination, I'm not taking pot shots at other Christians. I'm simply reflecting what the leaders of those denominations freely admit and are even proud of. Thankfully, there are still pastors and members of many congregations in those denominations who believe the truth of God's word and still proclaim it. But the vast majority of the seminary professors and the denominational leaders have surrendered the Bible as the foundation of their theology. And when the Bible is surrendered, anything goes. Abortion, same-sex marriage, gay clergy, all of which the mainline denominations are on record as approving. And every year as their attendance declines further, they double down and renew their efforts to stop the hemorrhage, not by returning to the scriptures, but by adapting even more to the culture and adopting even newer techniques of leadership and communication and church growth, none of which really works because they're just treating symptoms, not the root problem. What they seem to fail to realize is that the people in the pew want to hear a word from the Lord. That's the only thing that really satisfies. It's the only thing that really works. Good theology is always based on the truth of God's word. Listen to the introduction to the first epistle of John as he tells us what his foundation is and what ours ought to be. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That life appeared as we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
John calls upon virtually all the human senses, a sight, hearing, feeling, speaking, to state in the strongest way possible that the story you are about to hear from me is true. And in the fourth gospel, the same apostle uses the word truth almost 50 times. He was consumed with the conviction that the message about Jesus was absolutely true. And in one of Jesus' most startling statements, he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's Jesus claiming here? Is he claiming to just be the truth for his own day, for his own culture, merely for his own followers? No. He's claiming to be the absolute, eternal, universal truth to which every person must submit. In fact, there is no other way, he says, by which we may come to God. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among, given to men by which we must be saved. Now I grant you that our secular culture scoffs at the notion of absolute truth. The intelligentsia in our culture are absolutely sure there's no absolute truth, if that makes any sense, which it doesn't. They hold that truth is established by each person's perception and preference. But the Apostle Paul argues vehemently against the notion that truth is relative. He says, though he was living in a culture of great religious and philosophical diversity, he says to Timothy, his young protege, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Friends, that's just another term for biblical theology. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul says to Timothy, your single greatest responsibility is to teach the truth from God's word. But he's warned that there are many in his own day, and how many more in our day, who want to adjust the truth to their individual needs and desires. They want plenty of wiggle room. Now the important thing to realize is when Paul warns here about the fact that a time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, he's not talking about ancient times. He's not talking about the secular world. He's not talking about the liberal church. He's speaking to all of us in God's church. Dr. David Wells, a former professor at Trinity and now at Gordon-Conwell, a seminary, wrote a book, a very pro provocative book, called No Place for Truth. He said this, I have watched with growing disbelief as the evangelical church has cheerfully plunged into astounding theological illiteracy. 
The effects of this great change in the evangelical soul are evident in every incoming class in the seminaries, in most publications, in the great majority of churches, and in most of their pastors. That's a terrible indictment of the evangelical church. He's saying that we have stopped caring to a large extent about theology and biblical literacy. We haven't stopped receiving religious input. Uh, we're, we're consuming it in ever greater quantities, actually, on the internet and, and uh, through bookstores. But there has been a troubling shift over the past several decades from what is true to what works. From theology to methodology. Many churches are very concerned about growth, which they should be, but not nearly as concerned as they ought to be about what their people are growing on. Search committees often look for pastors who have vision and skill at management, and yet they don't pay enough attention to that pastor's comprehensive understanding of God's truth and whether or not he has a passion to preach it. The shift to methodology is often accompanied by another troubling and unbiblical thought process, and that is the focus upon the self. Nowhere is this seen more than in Christian marketing and publishing. One would think from looking at the best-selling list of Christian books that the essence of our faith is how to be prosperous, how to be financially successful, how to lose weight while filled with the Holy Spirit. A study by James Davidson Hunter of the eight leading uh, Christian publishers indicates that 87.8% of the titles dealt with subjects related to the self its discovery, its nurture, the resolution of its problems and tensions. Once again, I quote my friend Brad Harper. He says, is there a positive side to the church following cultural trends? Sure. Some churches who have sought to speak the gospel in more culturally relevant and efficient forms have seen many come to Christ. But when the church structures its message according to the felt needs of its audience, it creates a Christianity centered on self. And the ultimate consequences of Christianity centered on self is that theology becomes therapy. The search for righteousness is replaced by the search for happiness. Holiness by wholeness. Truth by feeling. And God's sovereignty is diminished to whatever it takes to have a good day. Friends, biblical Christianity is all about truth. God has spoken truth to us in his word, in the scriptures. We need to hear it. We need to listen to it. We need to believe it. We need to share it. Secondly, and more quickly... We must be good theologians that we might share the truth accurately with a lost culture. In Peter's first epistle, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you 
to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think this presupposes a solid understanding and foundation of truth. We are to offer reasons, not feelings, not intuitions, not speculations. In his letter to Titus, who was pastoring a church on the island of Crete, Paul writes concerning how a Christian leader should operate, a pastor. He says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Church leaders, and logically those who follow them, are to hold on to what for dear life? Not their experience, not their feelings, but the truth. Experience and feelings are valuable. They're necessary. But that to which we are to hold firmly above all else is the trustworthy message, the objective truths of the word of God which have been taught to God's people. There is, of course, a valuable place for sharing one's Christian experience. As a matter of fact, that's what distinguishes evangelicalism from other branches of Christianity. We believe that it is not mere mental assent to a statement of faith that we need. We need to experience God's love and it needs to change our lives. But the downside is that a lot of believers seem to have come to the conclusion that their wonderful experience of God's love makes theology or doctrine irrelevant. Uh, let's not nitpick about doctrine, seems to be the attitude of so many. The little book of Jude is one of my favorites. It's, um, it was written by the half-brother of Jesus. It's a very provo provocative and profound little book. Jude set out to write a book about salvation. And before he could get started, he changed his plans. He felt compelled to. Here's how he states it. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The term faith here is not speaking of our subjective faith in Christ. It's talking about the faith the body of truth that has been delivered to us in the scriptures. We are to fight for it. We are to contend for it. That doesn't mean we have to be contentious and obnoxious about it. Uh, some of you have heard of the ancient church father, Chrysostom, who uh, is famous for having said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What he meant is that when you're dealing with the fundamentals of the faith, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the second coming, the sacrificial atonement, you can't compromise. You need unity on those things. But when you're dealing with non-essentials, important things, but not essential to salvation, like the mode of baptism or the time of the rapture, some things like that, then you need liberty. You need to give people some freedom in everything you need to show the love of Christ. The problem is that some people, 
seem bent on reducing the essentials to one, just belief in Jesus. If someone confesses Jesus, then he's my brother. Nothing else matters. That is actually quite naive. I recently heard an invitation at the end of a rather light sermon where the pastor gave an invitation that no one could have responded to intelligently to be saved because there wasn't anything to it. Here's essentially what he said to the audience. Open your life to God and let God be your friend. Is that heresy? No, but it certainly is warm and fuzzy and totally inadequate. In order for a person to be born again by faith in Christ, he needs to know who he is. He's a sinner before a righteous God. He needs to know that Jesus died on the cross to save him from his sin. He needs to know that Jesus rose from the dead where God vindicated his death on the cross. He needs to repent and he needs to receive Jesus as an act of the will. Friends, we must be good theologians in order that we can share with people, with lost people, the hope of eternal life. Third, we must be good theologians so that we might live according to what is true. We've talked about believing the truth and sharing the truth. How about living the truth? Good theology and godly living are inextricably bound together. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul gives this encouragement to his young friend Timothy. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Watch your life and your doctrine. In a syndicated, syndicated column a few years ago, Cal Thomas wrote very cogently, if you tell me you do not believe in God, and then you say that I should break for animals, or pay women equally, or help the poor, on what basis are you making such an appeal? If no standard for objective truth, law, wisdom, justice, charity, kindness, compassion, and fidelity exists in the universe, then what you're asking me to accept is an idea that has taken hold in your head, but that has all the moral compulsion of a bowl of cereal. You are a sentimentalist trying to persuade me to a point of view based on your feelings about the subject and not rooted in the fear of God or some other unchanging earthly standard. Now sadly, it's possible for a person to have pretty sound doctrine and still live a miserable life. Uh, live a very immoral life. How else can you explain the number of pastors and priests who have gone down the tubes morally? We have an enormous capacity to violate what we know is true. But I would also say to you that it's impossible to be spiritually healthy 
unless we are growing in knowledge and obedience of God's truth. I want to share one more proposition with you very briefly. And that is that God's word trumps all theological systems. If you're a card player, you know that even the lowest trump in one suit will take any card in any other suit. What I want you to hear this morning is that God's word is trump. It supersedes any traditions, any ideas, any speculations, any cultural thoughts, any hopes, any dreams. It supersedes anything. I've talked about the tendency of many in the church to minimize theological literacy and biblical literacy. But there are a few in the church who go to the opposite extreme. They are extremely interested in theology and have everything worked out in a neat little package and have actually turned it into an idol. Their theological system becomes more important to them than scripture. By theological systems, I am referring to the effort to package uh, the truths of Scripture into a coherent whole. You've heard of some of these systems. Arminianism, Calvinism, Dispensationalism, Covenant Theology, uh, Wesleyanism, Pentecostalism. The point I wish to make here is simply that when a system of theology conflicts with Scripture, we must go with Scripture. And they all do conflict somewhere because they are all human constructs. In our drive for logical consistency, we have a terrible tendency to massage the scriptures so it fits into our system instead of massaging our system so it fits the scripture. I appeal to you to let the Bible speak for itself that every passage say what it wants to say. Now, friends, the bottom line is that we study theology because the church will die without it. Because God commands us to diligently seek the truth about him, we must be biblically literate and we must become biblical theologians that we might believe and confess what is true, no matter how it feels that we can share the truth accurately with a lost world so that they can be saved, that we might live according to what is true, rejecting the moral rationalizations of our age. And once we adopt a system of theology that works for us, we must never allow it to trump the word of God. Developing a sound theology is, of course, not easy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be urged in the Bible to contend for it and to persevere in it. You don't get a solid theology unless you work at it. If your input is currently limited to a Sunday morning service or reading the daily bread, I suggest to you that you need more. And Tim Wiebe is going to come up shortly and tell you how you can get more. I close with this observation. Years ago, the great 20th century theologian, Tammy Faye Baker, made this astounding observation. 
The Christian life is so wonderful, I would believe it even if it weren't true. That's absurd. The Apostle Paul said the exact opposite. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is not true. We are to be pitied, most pitied among all men. Why? Because we have been duped and we've missed out on the pleasures of sin if we have believed what is false. Friends, God calls us not to some syrupy religious experience. He calls us to the truth and to perseverance in sound theology. Are you persevering in it? Let's pray. Lord, there are so many things distracting our attention from the firm foundation of your word and the great truths it conveys about you, about your character and your works. We're distracted by human ideas, by eloquent speakers, by media messages that are attractive and exciting. We're distracted by books that scratch our itching ears. Lord, help your church to return to the foundation of biblical theology and biblical understanding that we might believe the truth, that we might share it, and that we might live it so that you are glorified in our lives. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.